Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, September 2nd, 2005, a woman by the name of Cindy Sheehan is beginning a three-week tour around the country to protest the war in Iraq. Cindy Sheehan was one of the most notable and vocal opponents of the war, a woman who was radicalized against the conflict after her son, Casey, had been killed in that war. Uh, prior to this protest tour around the country, which would eventually end up with a massive rally in Washington, D.C., Sheehan and other anti-war protesters had kept a vigil in Crawford Texas or near Crawford, Texas at what came to be known as Camp Casey. So that's what we're discussing today. Cindy Sheehan, Camp Casey, the legacy of anti-war protest in the Middle East, uh, all stuff that feels oh so relevant even today, 16 years later, as we wind down the conflict in Afghanistan. So here to discuss it all are, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And a quick shout out to listener Ethan Turpin, who suggested that we do something on Camp Casey. And I don't think we realized just how relevant it Mm. would feel, really. Um, But maybe let's start even bigger picture, Kelly, Mm -hmm. with September 2005. Um, This is a moment I think we all remember, but just Mm -hmm. paint for listeners kind of like there's a lot of big political narratives and big storylines colliding at this moment. Nine months into Bush's second term, a controversial presidency at that, Hurricane Katrina has just hit and devastated all of uh, the Gulf Coast. And, you know, anti-war tensions are, are escalating and Americans are really split about how they feel about this war, um, how they feel about President Bush, and especially among the black community, you know, on this day as well, we should say there's a telethon to raise money for Katrina victims. And this is when Kanye West gives his famous George Bush does not care about black people quote. Yeah. And so, which could have been I, an episode in and of itself. We could have probably yes. made that an episode and then did <laughs> yes. the, so the subplot of the war. But yes, the larger atmosphere. Yes, yes. The air of apathy, shall we say, is, is, is all around or skepticism hmm. about how people feel about this presidency in this in this moment and a sense that the bush administration has no competency to respond to crises right um so there mm-hmm. had been you know the rock war had hit a kind of stalemate as you were saying kelly public mm-hmm. opinion is split and suddenly the anti-war movement 
matters in a way that I think political commentators didn't give it a lot of credit back in 2003 because public opinion was so strongly on the side of the invasion. But at this point in time, public opinion is split and an active anti-war movement has the potential to flip public opinion and ultimately does, along with events on the ground, flip public opinion against the Iraq war um, within like maybe a year of the Camp Casey protests. And and I do think it is it's it's hard to understate how much Katrina and the war and in this moment were really interconnected and just mm-hmm. turning this you know we've talked about it on the show like public opinion is not related to a particular set of facts that then tip you it is is related to a big amalgam of an impression and i think the impression in the summer and into the fall of 2005 was what we've been describing about the bush administration and i think kelly your use of the word apathy i mean look people know i think where i stand on the bush administration and (laughs) i think we're learning even more and more about how destructive a lot of that that era was Mm -hmm. but I do think that notion of apathy, not just incompetence, mm. but that, you know, Bush couldn't even bother to mm. s- to to go to New Orleans and really pay attention. Yeah. And with the war, this sort of hubris mixed with apathy of, yes, we're just going to win it. It's going to be taken care of. You know, we're just going to roll in and this war will be tidy and clean. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was like really in the air and was starting to shift in a larger sense, um, which I think does relate a little bit to Cindy Sheehan, because when we talk mm-hmm. about her, she strikes me as a figure who is just going up against this wall of apathy and just yeah. trying to sort of scream into a void and say, look, there's a humanity here. There's a grieving mother here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Please listen to me. Mm. I mean, so Cindy Sheen is, we should just give a little bit of a background on her, is a mother of four. And her son, Casey, is is killed in the war. He's 24 years old, um, still very much in the youth of his life. Um, and this is devastating. For, for any mother to lose a child, it's devastating. But in a war that also feels highly problematic um, and controversial, you know, Cindy wants an explanation. She wants someone to address her her grievances. Um, and so when she basically starts this campaign where she is going to camp out in Crawford, Texas, where she knows that George Bush goes to um, vacation and essentially wait for him to to meet with her, to talk to her while she is while she is there. And and this this sort of like setting up camp really becomes um a movement, not just about Camp Casey, but a larger movement for anti-war protests. And, you know, in many ways, the anti-war movement had long been organized around a kind of intellectual slash political argument. But by putting Cindy Sheehan at the heart of it, she was meeting that wall of apathy with a call for sympathy and empathy Mm -hmm. because there was so much emotion at the heart of this idea of a a grieving mother um, whose life was falling apart around her in this moment. Her husband files for divorce while she's at Camp Casey. Her mother has a stroke and she has to leave the protest for a week to get her mom back on her feet. And in the midst of all that, she's just like this this avatar of raw emotion and pain coming up against the administration and asking for something that on the outside seems very simple. She's just asking for a meeting and she doesn't get it. Yeah. And not getting it reinforces that idea that George Bush doesn't care about yeah. gold star moms either. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm reminded that 
the previous year is also when Pat Tillman dies. Um, And, you know, the politicization of Pat Tillman's death and the way that his family was trying to talk Mm -hmm. about the sort of real grieving that they were doing and the and the the tragedy of of his loss of life, um, I think you know, echoes in here. And actually, I, I'm, I'm looking at the email that we got from our listener, Ethan, about this. And it's, it's a lovely email and hits on all these themes, including, you know, talking about how he remembers the Iraq war feeling like it is a cultural moment, that so much of the conversation about the Iraq war was not just about war and our and our efforts there but really about this culture of patriotism and this, mm-hmm. this lingering post 9-11 feeling um mm-hmm. and the way that we talk about our quote-unquote heroes uh and the yeah. soldiers who get and the blood and treasure and the soldiers who gave their life there's so many cultural layers on top of that and i think that's really important part of this this story the pat tillman story as i said and and, and so forth And we could even bring in the 2004 election for this because John Kerry was a Vietnam veteran. Um, And during the uh, campaign, one of the things that started happening on the right was mocking his Vietnam service, right? Saying that he hadn't deserved his Purple Heart, wearing mm-hmm. Band-Aids with Purple Hearts drawn on them to say that he hadn't had any real sacrifice or any real mm-hmm. injury. And so it's this moment when there's ramped up patriotism and this ramped up pro-military sentiment, but also you have a veteran running who's being mocked and um, denigrated for his service. So it's this really odd, polarized patriotism um, that emerges in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And the sort of inability to show weakness among leadership. So leadership can't sort of um, even suggest or hint at that they might have to be apologetic mm-hmm. or sorry or confront something that you have to really be. I mean, it ties into masculinity or toxic masculinity as well, but it's this idea that I don't owe you an explanation or I don't owe you anything. Um, Really, that that sentiment is circulating as well. And it gets so clearly expressed in George Bush's response to Cindy. And those dynamics spill over into Camp Casey because there's a a sort of counter protest that's set up in Crawford. They deem themselves Camp Reality. And actually, at one point, a man takes his truck, his pickup truck, and he drives through this memorial of crosses that had been erected for the people who had lost their lives in the Iraq war. And you see all of these tensions and clashes playing out there in Crawford as well. Yeah. Um, So one particular flashpoint in addition to this incident with the truck um, and these counter protests, there is, and it's on August 13th, 2005. So this is during the sort of encampment before the the tour around the country that would culminate in Washington, D.C. Um, that started in September. But in mid-August, as Cindy Sheehan is leading this encampment near the ranch in Crawford, Texas, um, George Bush, who is vacationing in Crawford, is asked about why he won't go and meet with these these protesters and this woman who is staying right outside of his ranch and he gives i think a pretty remarkable answer um so he says i'm not going to meet with cindy sheehan because quote i think it's important for me to be thoughtful and sensitive to those who have got something to say but i also think it's important for me to go on with my life to keep a balanced life i think people want the president to be in a position to make good crisp decisions and to stay healthy by which i guess he means I would need to be outside and exercising and riding my bike, um, which oh my I don't think that played very well. It also reminds me of it's that. It's tone deaf. <laughs> it's so tone deaf. Like it just, it makes, I don't know how anyone, I mean, clearly, you know, he's, they're not like um, screening what he says before he says it. But like, 
I don't know how he could have thought that that would have been an appropriate response for a gold star mother, no less. Like to say, well, you know, I got to go on with my life Um, as though he's got other things to do than address mothers who have lost their children to war, a war that he began. Yeah, it's somewhere in this around the same time that that, that it makes me reminds me of that famous Bush moment where he denounces terrorism while he's on the golf course. And then he says, now watch this drive. And he turns and he hits. the Oh, Uh, yeah. I think the mix of and look, you know, lots of presidents have gotten in lots of trouble when they mix sports and leisure time (laughs) and, you know, the the serious business of of politics. But um, but yes, I think there was a real tone deafness here. And I think um, like we were saying, you know, a mix of apathy and and, and hubris, I think, started to Mm -hmm. really change the narrative. Uh, in the fall, in the summer and fall of 2005. And all of that really prefigures then the Katrina response. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea mm-hmm. that he would have a, a tone deaf, non-empathetic response there is something he had been previewing all summer. Yep. So towards the end of the summer, around this moment um, in early September, they sort of pick up Camp Casey. And I think part of it is because Bush is no longer vacationing there. Has It's Labor Day is returning back to uh, D.C. And Cindy Sheehan and her group... Um, start a nationwide tour um, to meet with groups around the country and uh, sort of raise awareness. And it's a bunch of buses uh, going around the country. And they do eventually end up um, in Washington, D.C., where there is a protest with, uh, you know, 100,000, 200,000 people. Um, And so it really does build momentum. I think, Nikki, I'm curious, you know, you're such a watcher of the media at this time. I'm curious how much Camp Casey fit into like an emerging lefty media ecosystem at the time as well. Well, I think that's a that's a great question because there was emerging these left wing blogs and left wing left wing activism had been around for a while, obviously, but new left wing groups. Um, Air America had started in two thousand four, so there's more room in what we might call alternative media for these viewpoints and for good coverage of both Camp Casey and the anti-war movement more broadly. Because it's something that we're being reminded of today, the most media outlets were hesitant to be critical of the war. It takes them, mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of lagging behind public opinion when it comes to criticism of the war effort, when it comes to the idea that you would withdraw from Iraq in 2005. You're not getting a lot of editorial boards coming out and saying, yes, let's leave Iraq in mid-2005. So having these alternative outlets, um, having blogs, having radio coverage, um, we're not quite in the age of social media yet. So those become incredibly important for amplifying this message. And the message is amplified. Um, It's not just that they're traveling around, but there are little Camp Casey's that start springing up across the country, you know, uh, six years before Occupy Wall Street, um, Mm -hmm. you have a different kind of encampment that's um, springing up in left-wing areas. Or the Tea Party, right? I mean, you think about the way that the Tea Party was such a media-driven phenomenon, but then spread out into people doing little chapters and sort of and mm-hmm. there is a cultural component there. I mean, I, I've, I feel like I was maybe critical of the sort of way in which a conversation at war tapped into a cultural component. But I mean, it obviously like that's how we that's the lens through which we see things. And I think the media mm-hmm. helps make it feel like, for back, lack of a better term, like protesting and resisting the, the war is now there's some cultural cachet or it's something that you see yeah, your neighbors legitimate. doing. You see it on TV and all of a sudden it sort of blooms around the around the country in these smaller ways. 
Mm-hmm. It gets legitimized a lot, yeah. a lot more. Because I do think that a lot of, I mean, and this is not just in this current moment, but I think all throughout history, anti-war protesters have been marginalized or sort of seen as un-American or unpatriotic, um, and or you know, like these group of fringe people that don't know all of the facts or whatever it is. But I think there's a way that we have dismissed people that have been anti-war um, or that even people that want to sort of pause a little bit in terms of engaging in terms of war, we have um, not really given them an equal voice in this discussion. Yeah, and that can be anything from Vietnam War protesters, but also mm-hmm. you know mothers protesting against the Cold War and nuclear war in the late 1950s yeah. and early 1960s. They're marginalized, they're ridiculed, they're just not given the same kind of hearing um, that they would be given later, right? It looks very different in 1980 when you have a million people in Central Park protesting um, nuclear weapons in the Cold War or when you have, you know, in the late 1960s, anti-war protests that suddenly have popular support. So she and herself... um you know, there's this moment of protest. I think Camp Casey was the, was the, was the highest profile. But she now has she's still alive. She's still out there. She continues to live a life of of activism. Um, you know, she protested during the Obama era. She protested mm-hmm. during the Trump era. I think she ran for California governor at one point. Uh, I don't think got that much uh, uh, of of the vote. But you know, I think one of the things I think about when I when I think about someone like Cindy Sheehan, and you know, at this point almost 20 years of anti-war activism, right? It is. It ties directly into a lot of the reflection that we're doing right now about the war in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And a realization, I, I would say, that so much of what we're seeing now in Afghanistan was just an inevitable product of something that happened 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the Cindy Sheehan's of the world saw it and have been sort of t- yeah. talking about it ever since. And I'll just say, like to me, one of the more, more remarkable things about these last couple of weeks and the conversation about our withdrawal from Afghanistan has been just seeing different people talk about the moment at which they realize what's happening now was inevitable. And for some people, it was a a month ago. Some people, it was five years ago. Some people, it was 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. But everyone seems to have had that moment where, okay, these seeds were planted, and this is where we are. And can we just say, too, that the irony of the fact that we have also just experienced another major hurricane Mm -hmm. along the golf course with Hurricane Ida. And how a lot, I mean, a lot of people in the New Orleans area are having like PTSD about the same, this feels so similar, you know, to have these same occurrences happening at the same time um, is remarkable, but it just, it, it needs to be noted that this is also happening in our current moment. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is where we're going to leave the episode. Um, Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thanks, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported, artist-owned podcasts. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Kala Nakua helps with transcripts. Julie Shapiro is executive producer for Radiotopia. Get in touch with us if you have any questions or comments or ideas for the show. You can email us thisdaypod at gmail.com or you can find a form at thisdaypod.com where you can also get our full archives, transcripts, and learn lots more about the show. Follow us on social at thisdaypod on Instagram and Twitter where we are posting stuff each and every day. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon. George Bush said... 
that the families can be can rest assured that their children died for a noble cause. And I want to ask him, what is that noble cause? We're laying the foundation of peace for generations to come. We're defeating the terrorists in a place like Iraq so we don't have to face them here at home. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money! You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. From P.